Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of HivriaCast. Um, I'm so excited. I have someone who is impossible to book, <laughs> at least in my experience. So I'm so excited to have Chloe Valdari. Is that Valdari? Valdari. <laughs> This is why we met. Was so exactly. We could finally get this out. We could work that out, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's so good to have you. Thank you. And I imagine most of the people listening know what your deal and know what you're up to, but I would love to hear, you know, just an overview of what you're up to. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So I am a brand ambassador for Jerusalem U, mm-hmm. which is a film production comp- company based in Jerusalem. Um, and an Israel education organization. So our goal is to really create content that gets young Jews to engage more deeply with their Israel identity. Mm-hmm. Our target audience is ages 16 through 28. And we produce digital shorts. We produce feature-length films. And we also produce other forms of content in more of a person-to-person situation. And I can explain what that means. Mm-hmm. But myself as a brand ambassador, I am more on the digital short end. So I create a lot of the content that goes on social media for digital shorts. So Mm -hmm. we're talking like two minutes to five minute films. What is a brand ambassador? What does that mean? So it's a great question. And I work in marketing, so this is pretty sad that I'm asking you this. But So so I'll try to think of an example. So sometimes, let's say Nike is having an event and it wants its, its company represented at a fair or something so it might hire a brand ambassador oh, right. to rep it and and pass out information on its stuff okay. um but i'm a full-time brand ambassador for jerusalem U, which means mm. i rep what we stand for as a brand and mm. in many different forms in the type of content we create as well as in like i said those person-to-person types of content that we create mm-hmm. and what that means is essentially I lecture around the country, especially in Jewish communal spaces, Hmm. um, about Zionism. Um, And in order to do that, I have to build lectures. I have to build what is hopefully going to be epic content that will draw in my wonderful millennial audience. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I have so many thoughts about that. That's so interesting. I say that ironically because I'm a millennial. (laughs) Yeah, we have to be ironic about it, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. that's really interesting. So how much of that is related to your, like, do, do you see that as related to your activism or is it something where it's kind of like, what's what's the relationship between that and your Israeli activism? So I would say when I was a sophomore in college mm-hmm. in 2012 is when my activism, my Israel activism began. And that means that I you know, started a student pro-Israel organization at the mm. University of New Orleans. We tabled, we threw events, etc. So that was when my Israel activism ended, and, or excuse me, began. And then it ended mm. really All right. in an informal way, <laughs> in an informal way in 2015 mm-hmm. after I graduated and went to the Wall Street Journal for a year. Right. And when I was at the Wall Street Journal, I did a research paper on the topic of Israel and millennial engagement, mm-hmm. what works, what doesn't, and how to make it better. And it was during that process that my um, activism phase, I think, act- oh, activism phase was slowly phasing out. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that in retrospect. So Right. Um, so, okay. That's really interesting yeah. to me. Okay. So I know that... There's the Facebook status we'll get to in a second, yeah. but um, I guess that I always saw you as an activist. Yes, you know from the moment I read your tablet article, which right. I imagine that's how a lot of people heard yeah. about you at first. Um, 2014, yeah. 2014, yeah. That was that was good. <laughs> Thank you. I just remember the oh, it was like fire, you know, it was yeah. so good. And um, you meant you actually why don't you like uh, just describe that article real quick? Yeah, so so I'll give you a bit of background. So I, I was in Boston in 2014, mm-hmm. and 2014 was when the Gaza War happened, and I did not know that Boston was this um, super hyper protest town where they get political about everything, mm-hmm. and so there were protests and counter protests happening 
every day in Boston. Mm -hmm. And my friend who was in New Orleans at the time was telling me that there was also an anti-Israel protest happening in the French Quarter. And I'm from New Orleans, so that's like home turf. (laughs) Um, And and the way he described it to me made me very upset Mm. because you had members of Students for Justice in Palestine getting on the subway or getting on the streetcar rather and they said that we are going to get on the streetcar in order to invoke the black struggle um, Mm -hmm. to protest what's happening in Gaza and I thought that was both disrespectful and coming from a place of ignorance because you know we boycotted the streetcars in order to protest Um, but also there's a very strong historical relationship between Zionism and the black community And, and so my frustration um, really manifested itself in that piece, which was entitled Open Letter to SJP from an Angry Black Woman. So that's sort of like the context <laughs> so good. So good. of that piece. Yeah, I just remember like loving it. it was, <laughs> and I felt like it was, it was, there's every now and then there's like a piece of writing that mm-hmm. it feels like is, even when it comes from like a, a different, like a different, um, like the person is from a different background or mm-hmm. whatever, like that it seems to express something that people had inside them. Yes. You know, in a way that, and that's why like pieces go viral. I yeah. Think. I mean, at least good ones, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, so I felt like that about that piece. And anyway, so my, my point being that um, I guess I always saw you, and even now, like I see right. you as an activist. Right. Um, especially with all your like amazing, like, right, like, I guess it's more like, you know, a lot of social updates mm-hmm. and stuff like you know, you're always kind of ruminating even internally. Like it yeah. sounds like it seems like an internal thing, but like a lot of it's internal. Right. <laughs> right. But it's still like this. I get a very activist tone from it. maybe. Yeah. And so I guess that's I'm curious, like what makes you feel like you stopped being an activist? I think it's because I started to see a distinction between and maybe this isn't a a. Maybe it's not a clear distinction. Um, Mm -hmm. The lines may be blurred, but I started to see a distinction between activism and artistry as they manifest themselves in our current climate and in our current discourse, Um, both both within sort of the pro-Israel community, if you will, and in the larger in the community at large. Um, And what I mean by that is the activist-oriented mind is rooted in, for all intents and purposes, trying to reach political ends. And what that meant was that the way I was discussing Israel with people who I was trying to convince to be pro-Israel and the way I was discussing Zionism was really within the political framework. But I was forgetting to have a conversation that started, first and foremost, in being rooted in the human condition. Mm. And I think that that is where art starts to be created, starts to develop. And this crazy uh, story actually that really highlights this for, for the 4th of July, I was at a moisture house uh, rooftop mm. and it's crazy. Cause they were like Jews, non-Jews, like everyone was there. I have no idea how they got everyone to come for, <laughs> for the, I, like kudos really? to them for doing so. Moisture house, Williamsburg, um, in Williamsburg, in Williamsburg. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> but I was, I was talking to two girls mm-hmm who were not Jewish and I was telling them about what I do and, you know, talking to them about Zionism in a language that was not political, fundamentally political. It was, Mm. it was a, it was a language that again was rooted in the human condition. And at the end of our conversation, they asked me, Oh, are you also an artist? And so they had this perception of me from that conversation that I was actually an artist and not an activist. And that was when I had a sort of aha moment that I wanted to move more and more into that space so that when people interact with me and when they engage with me, they have that sense as opposed to a strictly political uh, conversation, which is fine. But I think political conversations don't do enough to break down barriers Mm. between people. And at least in my experience. Well, it's interesting considering the times we're in. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, Indeed. Wow. Okay. So, I mean, that's so interesting because I guess it's so funny because I feel like, um, you know, at least for me, I know my life has kind of felt like a like I'm ping-ponging between. Is that a phrase or did I just make that up? I don't think it's a verb, so. Well, <laughs> I'm a writer, so. I'm going to take uh, artistic license. There you go. <laughs> um, In the so, name of art. That's right. There we go. We're doing it. Um, so, like, yeah, I feel like I'm 
ping-ponging between mm-hmm. like um, politics and creativity, mm-hmm. and which is interesting because like I really thought I'd given up on like this whole political mm-hmm. thing. Like I actually majored in political science for like okay. about two seconds in college, <laughs> and then I went through all this crazy stuff in college, but whatever. And then I came out of it wanting to be like a writer and all mm-hmm. these things. And since then, for a long time, like I was, you know, very not to make this all about me, but my point being that like late, like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I've at least first it was like about Israel. I realized, okay, I have to be political in this arena. Right. And then all of a sudden all this stuff is happening in America. I'm like, oh, I have to be political. Right. And then it's 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 very interesting because it seems to me like sometimes like it's it seems like sometimes we're in moments where we're where not achieving the ends mm-hmm. are very, it's very scary to think of. Right. And it's very like, it almost feels worth it to sacrifice the human mm-hmm. uh, communication. That's in that aspect. Right. And I, I mean, it's very interesting. And then it, it's fascinating to me because like now as we're, this crazy world is yeah. like more normal, like whatever your opinions are <laughs> of it, you know, like my point being, is like, we, it's crazy. I think we can all admit things are crazy. It's just yeah. in what way, but yeah, so cool. Absolutely. Right. So like now it's like, okay, so, so how do we, how do we approach this? How do we look at this right. in a way? And, and I guess to me, I guess I wonder, and I think you kind of touched on it. It's like, maybe sometimes the lines are really blurred or maybe yeah. like, cause I don't, I realized I was going too far with it too. Like I okay. can't be ending these, I can't be, you know, taking it to the point of inhumanity. Right. right? Like, right, right. So I guess I'm, I'm curious what, how you are able to balance, that, especially I think with Israel, because right. Israel is one of those things where that's always been crisis. Right. Mode, you know, like, yeah, it's a very complicated question. I think because I am so used to the activist sort of, landscape that it's not difficult for me to operate in that framework. It's not difficult for me to, um, you know, sort of put out a, a rah, rah form of communication or rallying form of communication, um, or talking points form of communication that really, you know, excites the home base. But in my experiences that creates a preaching to the choir effect and also, if I, may, if I may be so bold to say, the pro-Israel community by and large, I think is or has been for some time ineffective in terms of the way it has communicated both to itself <laughs> and to outsiders about Israel and about Zionism. Um, and I can... That in part is informed by the research that I did. Um, It's in part informed by my own personal experiences in college. Like my philosophy of doing Israel advocacy, and I even make a distinction between Israel advocacy and Israel engagement, Hmm. right? So I did Israel advocacy for about two years in college, and then I started to slowly but surely do Israel engagement for one year in college. And those are two very different things, and the distinction is very simple. Israel advocacy today is essentially defined by a series of questions. The questions are, how do I get people to stop anti-Semitism? Or how do I get people to fight against the BDS movement? I got involved in, in the pro-Israel community in part because in 2012, I saw that anti-Semitism was resurfacing, especially in places like Europe, right? And in France in particular. So I wanted to put a stop to that. So my main question to the students I was engaging was, you know, how do we get people to stop anti-Semitism? How do we get people to stop BDS? But then that changed in Mm. the middle of doing it to how do we get people to fall in love with Israelis? And those are two fundamentally different questions, right? One question is, how do we get people to stop hating? Which, by the way, is the question being asked right now in our current American political discourse. Mm. Um, So that was the first question. How do we get people to stop hating? But Uh. the second question is, how do we get people to start loving? And that's a fundamentally different question. Mm. And that question creates a totally different set of um, projects, of, of events that can be community building um, and that opens up a space of communication and connection that the first question cannot. Mm. And that's when it starts to become art. Okay. So 
it's interesting because it seems to me, and maybe I'm, I'm misinterpreting, but it seems to me at least from your description that you, it, it, I, I could be wrong, but it seems like the, the way you're describing po- politics or at least being politically motivated is to a certain extent destructive. And yes. Or, or not like, necessarily destructive, but it really often exists in the realm of how can we fight against X or how mm. can we be against X as okay. opposed to how can we be for Y? All right. So you see like art as being right. for something. Right. Exactly. So that's interesting. So would you say, that's interesting. So I'm thinking like, I'm trying to think of it on a practical level. Okay. So like, let's say Martin Luther King. Yeah. He wanted to stop like right. a lot of the laws that were going on. But right. at the same time, he was trying to build like a vision. Right. You know, like like the I have a dream speech. Right. right. Like, um, So like the brilliance of Dr. King, for example, is that I don't think he would have been as successful if he was only asking, how do we stop X, right? He, you know, there's a famous TED Talk whose author I forget, but she talks about like all all great speeches throughout sort of human history that we have recorded follow the same pattern. And it's a description of the world as it is versus the world as it should be. Wow. And all great speakers provide that contrast. It's so Jewish, by the way. Yeah, Yeah. it's very very Jewish. Um, And... That's what Dr. King did. He didn't just, you know, critique the world that was. He talked about a world that could be. And that world that could be spoke to everything that I believe is deeply within us as human beings. And that's when I say it's rooted in the human condition and an understanding of the human condition, which is why he was so successful in persuading many communities that would have otherwise not have been persuaded. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I, um, I remember watching that recently. And I was, um, I was really struck, I think, because it was maybe the first time, like, I had really paid attention to it since being religious. Okay. And I remember, like, when I was, before I was religious, I watched it, and I would be, like, and listened to it, and I would be, like, okay, like, you know, <laughs> no, like, like, not, like, okay, but, like, yeah. in the sense of being, like, he wants to, a world where, like, everyone's equal or right. something, right? Right, And then I'm watching as a religious person. Right, it's totally different. Yeah, I'm it's like, totally oh my God, he wants Mashiach. Like, that's right. how it feels. Essentially, right? yes. I mean, yes. he's talking about a world where people are looking at each other's souls right. instead of their bodies. This this reminds me of so many things, but continue. Like, this is this conversation, by the way, right now, <laughs> is exciting me so much for, for a whole host of reasons, but yes. That's great. Um, and, and so... Many great artists mm. um, that we have mourned have also done that. Mm-hmm. Um, have also like spoke spoke to this vision, this great vision of a better society. And not, and I'm not saying that in a cliche way. I'm saying that like you know, Prince who just passed was very popular and very well known for doing that. And there are certain iconic artists that we have more. Leonard Cohen was someone who did that. Bob Marley. In many ways. Bob Marley was someone who did that. I mean, that. he literally was. I'm obsessed with Bob Marley, by the way. I have a huge framed poster of Bob Marley in my apartment, as well as wow. many books on Bob Marley, who, who, whose writings and songs are very much a part of my philosophy when it comes to teaching Zionism. But we're getting off topic. So, yes. So there are certain... Or maybe we're not. <laughs> or maybe we're not. <laughs> artists, right? Artistry. Yeah. So once it... Once it like Dr. King, who was, yes, um, a political activist mm. um, and all these great things, but who also was an artist uh, yeah. in many ways, um, represented that. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so much to digest. Um, yeah, so that's so interesting. So to look, because then it, that's, it's, 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 it's interesting because I think I tend to want to like break down binaries you know like right. i want to be like oh politics and art and all. at the same time it almost seems like this binary is is really powerful like it one yeah. and it's one that ironically the more you understand it seems to break itself down if that makes sense yes i think so because like meaning to say like um i think the the problem is for me at least and i and i think i would imagine for others is like that when i, I think politics i mm-hmm. think i'm talking about when I talk about racism mm-hmm. and the KKK or when I'm yeah. out protesting or whatever it is, like I'm doing something political. Right? Okay. And when I'm writing a piece about my life, like a, about how 
I had a near-death experience and mm-hmm. whatever. That's um, art. Okay. Now, like, so for me personally, it's very hard to find a place where those two coexist. Okay. And I think it's because it's a miss, like, it's a miss, like, I'm just thinking out loud. I feel like it's a miss, uh, def- miss understanding or like not a correct definition mm-hmm. of each because okay. because you, you could be in, in, a, in theory you could be at a political uh, at a protest right and you could be by your definition you could be art you could be an artist right or you could be an artist you could be um writing a memoir mm-hmm. and it could be political right in the sense that you're trying to achieve some end or you're trying to uh stop x or these right. sorts of things right um it just for some reason, it's just like a Go Ask Alice jumped in my head, even though that's like a fake memoir. But that's like uh, maybe that's like the the biggest example. But anyway, um, have you read that? I haven't. No. Oh, you haven't. So you know but what I'm it is, familiar right? With it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we'll move on. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting. It's and it's actually really fascinating because um, on Hevria we had like this big debate for a while. Like, mm-hmm. are we about positivity or negativity? Mm-hmm. Because when we started off, we were all like, we, we had this message, we were going to be a positive blog because there were so many negative blogs. Right. And then we were like, but we want to write about like these really taboo and yeah. intense subjects and we disagree with a lot of things. And then we realized, no, we need, the, that's the wrong definition. We need to be either constructive or de- we need to be constructive right. versus destructive. Right. So you could, anyway, point being that, yeah, it seems to me like like this, maybe that the, the the binaries themselves are are wrong in our mm-hmm. minds, you know. Mm-hmm. Like we're so concerned about, you know, artists are so concerned about whether they're being too political and. Pop. I see. And I think, you know, from recent uh, tweets I've seen, being too artistic yeah. as a <laughs> political person can be dangerous as well. <laughs> right. So I don't know. You, you know what I'm saying? I think I understand what you're saying. I think that the way. Let me see if I can articulate this properly. Um, the way I'm defining political is not per se the way you're defining it. Um, and I thought about that when you said artists worry about being too political. Mm. Um, when I say that I have, I'm trying to get away from the political and more into the art realm, I'm not saying that like that means I can't comment on, right. you know, uh, controversial topics, right? Right, right? That exist primarily in the political landscape. But what I am saying is the way that I speak in those landscapes right. is fundamentally more artistic than they are political. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think of a of an example, of a concrete example. I can't off the top of my head, but but it means it, I think it means that if I'm critiquing someone or if I'm um, congratulating someone, I'm doing so or I'm trying to do so, keeping the fullness of that person's humanity in mind Hmm. as opposed to just giving you a talking point, like a political talking point, (laughs) you know, Um, because life is complicated, right? And life can often be filled with ambiguity and I need to be, be able to live in a space where certain things are in tension with each other and still be comfortable in that space. And when I'm only giving political talking points, I can't really do that because everything is black and white. Everything is sort of like me versus you, right? Yeah, I was about to ask, like, it seems to me like also what you're describing is there's like a a certain tribal quality to politics. Like it's about one side versus the other and that side winning. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess that's how it makes it ultimately destructive, right? right? I mean, if it's about winning, that means you have to destroy right. the other side. Right. Wow. Wow. I think we're done. No, I'm just <laughs> I was like, you just Another great episode. <laughs> I was like, like well, you've solved all my problems in like 24 minutes. That was great. I'll give you, an, um, I'll try to give you an example. Oh, here we go. Okay. Good. It's in the context of what happened this week. Yeah. Okay. Um, just for anyone listening, we're talking about Charlottesville, I imagine. Yeah. Okay. So a strictly political sort of response to Charlottesville, especially, especially based upon what I've seen in my newsfeed. And I'll take, I'll take a position that I agree with actually, but which is, I think a political articulation, um, you know, and I've, 
I've seen this and I don't approve of this, uh, this type of bitterness and anger, I'll say. So a response to Charlottesville is, um, um, all, all white people go out and condemn, and I literally saw this, condemn these white, these other white blue devils for, okay. for doing what they did. All white. Okay. All good white people. All good white people. Okay. Sorry, clarification. Yeah. All good white people uh. need to go out and condemn oh, I see. these white blue devils for what they did in Charlottesville. What's, um, a, what's a blue devil? It is a pejorative term for a racist person <laughs> who is white. Okay. Um, but it's a political. It's it's a political sort of response to Charlottesville. It's a it's a bitter response. It's an angry response. I think that angry response is rooted in justified, you know, righteous indignation. It's a very bitter response. It's also like a, a demand in a sense. Yeah, like, it's a no demand, like, right? Like we demand that right. you. You know, good white people go condemn these white blue devils, blah, 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 right? Now, if I'm operating from the landscape or from the world of art, which means I'm trying to understand and and root my answers in the human condition, I want the KKK people Mm -hmm. to stop doing what they're doing, not just because, you know, obviously I'm offended as a person of color that you would hate me, that you would, you know say that you want to kill me and say that you want to um, remove me from the country, whatever. I want you to stop doing this because this is actually not good for you. Hmm. This is not good for your personal and spiritual development. Hmm. This is going to hold you back as an individual and as a society and as a community. Hmm. And, you know, in 1965, um, so James Baldwin gives this great debate in Cambridge um, he debated William F. Buckley, and he his whole debate is very elegant. And, but he says something interesting. He says that when the white racist Mississippi sheriff um, puts a gun to the breast of a young black female, uh, it's obviously horrible for the woman, but what does it say about the corrupted soul of mm. the man? Wow. And and he says, and I it gives me chills to think of it. He says, in some ways, it is much much worse for the man wow. than it is for the woman. Yeah. And so, understanding actually how bigotry works, I personally think bigotry um, comes from usually comes from deep, deep, deep insecurity within the within the bigot. Um, ironically, I think that the people yelling white power are actually very insecure about themselves and actually mm-hmm. don't feel a sense of, of like deep down about a sense of self-worth because someone who actually knows their worth will never denigrate another person. Right. You know, what's interesting is I always like not to go on a tangent, but yeah. it feels to me like there's ironically, I, I always feel like there's a, um, even though they always are reacting to um, the, victim narrative of like in in the liberal world right, right? there i mean the whole thing is like a victim narrative right like, like white genocide right all exactly these things like it's fascinating exactly it's paradoxical yeah um and contradictory yeah um but again i'm i'm trying to look at it from the perspective of a human condition right, right? so you're like why would why would that? you where does hate come from why would you hate someone in such a strong way or anyone in general? But why, like, where is this coming from? Where, why has this festered within you? What is it about yourself that you actually don't, don't deem so worthy that you have to overcompensate for that insecurity and project onto, onto the other? Hmm. So what's going on with that? Um, and how can we like figure this thing out? Like that's the deeper conversation I'm interested in. I'm going to be 100% honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. <laughs> yes. Up until now, I haven't been. No, just. <laughs> but I am having trouble imagining how that, like in specifically this example, yeah. it would would work, like be okay. effective. Let's say there's like, a famous gentleman whose name, of course, I forget because <laughs> I'm doing this interview. There's a famous, there's a famous African American gentleman mm-hmm. who spent years mm-hmm. befriending members of the KKK. It's like a famous story. Yeah, right? no, it went like viral, and like hundreds of them gave up their hoods mm-hmm. and and this like 
just rescinded their membership in the KKK. Um, not because he was like, you know, he, because he was basically like, how can you hate someone you don't know? Because he actually reached out to them and he was like, I'm just going to engage with you no matter how much you hate me, no matter how much you try to discriminate against me, whatever. And I'm going to relate to you as a human being mm. and as a person. So I'm going to relate this to, I'm just, <laughs> I can't know because you know what? It's, it's the thing is that it's so appealing and so yeah. beautiful. And but it's like, I have, I just think I, I, it's so hard to integrate. So like, yeah. it's like, I want it to be true. So, okay. but the, and that's why I'm interrogating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <Feel> free. <laughs> it's, it makes my ideas sharper. I Great. <laughs> so I actually, so this is, this is the thing. Like, it's interesting. Okay. So I want to actually relate this to your other work, which is, okay. um, Israel. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, yeah. I feel like one of the biggest mistakes that um, liberals have made, mm-hmm. um, not to like, I don't want to paint a huge wide brush, but I, right. I, I do think like the, in general, there seems to me to be a belief that the, if we, like it's totally possible to talk this out okay. with the other side. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's possible. Like we're both humans. Like yeah. we can connect, like we can work it out. And, um, and 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 there must be something you know deeper going on yeah. that's not just about like hate right and which actually like i think in essence is true yeah that i also feel like that also seems to me historically to have put a lot both palestinians and mm-hmm. israelis in danger mm-hmm. because it doesn't acknowledge that there's like this intense like like that some people like I'm, I'm talking specifically about the terrorists. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to say all Palestinians, yeah. God forbid, but some people go to such a point where they lose their humanity. Right. You know, and at what point, like, are you, where's, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I have trouble thinking to myself that, that because people like Israelis try to have tried to do this. They've right. tried to like sit down with terrorists and, and yeah. work things out to like, um, oh, why is my, uh, <laughs> Because we're, having, we're having an interview. Well, who's why. before Abbas? What was, what's, why? <laughs> Arafat. Arafat. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so embarrassing. Okay. So, um, yeah. So, you know, Arafat was supposedly doing this. Right. And at the t- same time, if you read, you know, uh, the memoir of uh, the son of uh, the Hamas leader. Oh, right. The Green you know, Prince. Yeah. Like, you can see he was, like, essentially playing yeah. everybody. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you could have maybe figured that out anyway. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> but the point being, like, I don't know. It's like, it feels to me like there are limits to that. I guess. Yes. So I have, that's a great question. Trying to formulate my thoughts. I will say that I think in part, these are two different things. Okay. Um, I think that it, the Israeli Palestinian conflict is different from race relations in America. And, Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that they come with two totally different historical contexts. And I'm also coming um, with my answers to this this challenge of race relations with America, with also an understanding of like what the Dr. Kings actually did um, to accomplish what they accomplished, and the Dr. Kings and the Maya Angelous and the great literary, let's say, writers of the Harlem Renaissance, um, and let's say Ralph Ellison, you know, who wrote Invisible Man, were coming from a position um, of recognizing the humanity in the other, um, which, you know, one could argue can maybe only work in an American context because of the way America is set up and because of the ideals that America claims to want to live up to. Mm. And so that, that makes it a totally different ball game than say the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Right. So I wouldn't necessarily say that because I believe in the power of, of saying to, you know, a member of the KKK, this is, this is harmful for your society in many ways. I I wouldn't necessarily say that that means that Israelis need to go sit down with Palestinian terrorists and like negotiate, right? A peace deal. Um, but I am saying that what I would say to Palestinian society, just as I, and I'm talking about Palestinian political culture, which is, which has a lot of anti-Semitism in it. Um, which is also what I would say to the KKK is in fact that the anti-Semitism is harming your society and it is keeping your society back. Um, and 
That means that when I'm critiquing Palestinian society, I'm not critiquing it because I want to tear it down. I'm critiquing it because I actually want Palestinian society to flourish. I'm critiquing it because their belief that it is Israelis that is holding them back is what's actually holding them back. And so that doesn't mean that I will give you a pass for what you're doing, right? It doesn't mean that I will make excuses for what you're doing. What you're doing is wrong, but I still believe in your worth as a human being or as human beings. And so I will speak to you with that in mind at all times. Interesting. So theoretically, yeah. you could be doing, let's say, the same work. Like you yeah. could be out in this, like uh, in America, maybe out protesting or whatever. I'm not saying that you would do this, but right. like, I know that I would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like um, you could be out there doing those things and you could be doing it. You could be almost doing the same exact action, but number one, experiencing it differently. Right. And number two, like, I guess looking at it the other differently. Right. And, and then I guess that, you know, is that, is that, would that be accurate how I'm describing it? I think in some ways, um, I think you have to deal with, obviously have to deal with different cultural contexts, right? Um, in each situation. Um, but the common denominator, if we are to continue with this art versus political binary, um, the common denominator is... I'm going to address you in a way that is rooted in a deep understanding of the human condition, in a way that understands how bigotry works and why bigotry occurs in the first place and why it has occurred um, as a sort of human psychological thing as opposed to just a, you know, you hate me and therefore I have to, you know. That's so cool. I mean, I think that that, again, it always seems to me like that you're kind of bringing up all these Jewish themes as yeah. well, you know, because <laughs> it's like so interesting to be like, you know, I want the world to be transformed yeah. into uh, a place of extreme positivity and yeah. like extreme connection and unity and all these things. So if it's just impossible, if like yeah. my goal, if my, if I, I'm thinking in the short term, and if I'm thinking in terms of like I need to beat X, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I have to always be thinking, like I want Mashiach to come. Yeah, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just so cool. <laughs> I feel like I don't even have questions. I just want to be like, that's cool. You know? Yeah, I, we should just like talk it out. How are we gonna do it? Now? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it right now. We got 23 minutes. 23 minutes left. <laughs> Michael Jordan number. It's magic, magic number. We went from being almost done to having. Like five hours more to talk. No, it's interesting because I do see, um, you know, I do see a lot of Jewish themes in in uh, in other sources. Um, you have you read the book "Your Word Is Fire"? No, it's unfamiliar. Oh, it's a really famous Jewish yeah. book about Jewish prayer. Actually, it's about prayer in general. Mm-hmm. Um, funny story. So I think you know the Shmulevskis. You've you've been to Simchas, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, you know I am horrible at names, so okay. I probably do not. Do you know him. Arthur and Allegra? Yes. Okay. I do. Okay. So fun fact: they're two of my best friends. Okay. Um, <laughs> that is a fun fact. That was the first time a fun fact was actually fun. Yeah. That was great. They were my first friends that I made when I moved to New York because uh-huh. I moved into their building randomly. They seem very special people. They're very yeah. special people. Um, but we were <laughs> we were at a Shabbat dinner. I was at a Shabbat dinner at their house once, and we were talking about this book, mm. Your Word is Fire. And I kid you not, in the middle, this is like, by this time, it was two in the morning. Okay, so we're reading this book, and by the time we f- we like are talking about it, I smell smoke, and I'm like, is something burning? And we look in the corner, and we see that one of the Shabbat candles has erupted, oh, in wow. in like in fire. Oh my gosh! I I kid you not, I'm not making the story up. Wow! And we insist that no one will ever believe us when we <laughs> tell this story, but. It happened. The candle was had, was supposed to burn out like hours before. Wow. So we were reading Your Word is Fire, and all of a sudden it erupted. Now, that story has really no connection to what I'm about to say. However, <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story, so I, <laughs> yeah. so I thought I'd tell it. But Your Word is Fire, in the prologue, speaks about this vision of society that 
is sort of where like the oneness of all human beings is made manifest. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to today, I'm reading a book called The New Negro, mm. Voices of the Harlem Renaissance, edited by Alan Locke. Another cool fact about that book is that in the prologue, they actually talk about Zionism because Zionism was a huge inspiration for artists in the Harlem Renaissance, which is a very, very little known fact. But um, one of the one of the essays talks about how the music of black people and the poetry of black people ultimately was so and is so powerful, certainly in the 1920s um, and certainly today, but is so powerful and was so embraced ultimately by America because it spoke to the oneness of all human beings. And I keep seeing this pattern both in Jewish texts and in all great artists that I love. We talk Mm. about Bob Marley, right? Bob Marley spoke to like this idea of the oneness of all human beings. Um, And that is a theme that informs a lot of my approaches to everything. It's beautiful. Yeah. You know what I find fascinating about Bob Marley is like that I always like it. It always seems like he's or was simultaneously uh, looking at like the unity of all people mm-hmm. while fighting a battle. You know? Yeah, like he was both. He was like this warrior and this like peace activist. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, and it's one of these things that that I guess I feel like that it must there must be something there for you, like in terms of. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I'm I'm uh, starting my own sort of like, I mean, I've been a Bob Marley fan for a while, mm-hmm. but I'm starting my own personal sort of self-education of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to read a lot about him. Um, and some might suggest in the same way that Heschel suggested that like Heschel deeply believed that Dr. King was an actual prophet. Like, oh, really? Yeah, like he actually thought that he was a prophet, like after the order of Isaiah. Um, <laughs> wow, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, because 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 he believed that Dr. King took the Torah and like the way he articulated it was prophetic. Um, this is like the craziest <laughs> conversation. Okay. Yeah. This is so cool. So, so like... Well, never mind. So, so, so the same way Heschel believed that, I think that I'm kind of starting to believe that Bob Marley was a prophet of sorts. Mm-hmm. In the sense that, you know, when he was younger, they, like when he was in Jamaica, some people, some people who were his friends would say that, like, he would say things as, like, a three-year-old child that would come true later. Like, he would say that, like, I'm going to die at the age of 36. Like, like he just knew. He, he was said that die. at three years old? Yeah, he said that. Like, <laughs> it was like either, like, it was between like the ages of three and seven. I don't remember, but. I mean, either way. But that's... either way, it's crazy. Yeah. But like his friends talked about how like he predicted certain things about uh-huh. his life and the way it would unfold. Uh-huh. So yes, to answer your question, I do think he was, a, he was like a warrior battling certain things. And I do think that he was simultaneously, you know, a peace activist. But he was... Yeah, he he was an artist. Like he like that's the difference between the difference between the way he communicated his 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 language and some politically minded people who I might agree with, right? But who who I don't think will ever connect until they break down the barriers that they have um inadvertently and unwittingly built up. Yeah, that's sorry, go ahead. That's it. I have like so much. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's it. I'm done. <laughs> no, but yeah, okay. Sorry, because I'm like, everything that you're saying makes me want to go on a different tangent. Like, because I actually find that fascinating because I think like so much of my experience has been like realizing, oh my gosh, like, okay, so these people in theory are my allies or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But I have like, I am like. Serious disagreements. Not even this, like, it's like I inhabit a different reality. Like, oh, I don't yeah. want to yeah. interact with them. Like, oh, it's yeah. not like a mean thing. Like, I just, yeah. you know, like, in the sense of, like, let's say pro-Israel stuff or yeah. let's say um, anti-Trump stuff or okay. whatever it happens to be. I'm like, okay. Like, yeah. I just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, my point being that I think um, I think what you're saying is really powerful because I think it's very it's very hard to find people that are interested in that, um, that tension, like in embracing it as opposed to trying to find a way to like hold it like down and and pick one or the other. You know what I'm saying? Um, 
I'm feeling that more, especially because I'm co- maybe coming from like the opposite place that you okay. were in the sense of like, I was always like, I'm an artist and whatever. Yeah. And, and then I was like, I was just like, there's no, there's no conflict with, and mm-hmm. I know if maybe for you, it didn't seem like a big deal, but for me, it was a huge deal to be able to be like, there's no conflict between being an artist and speaking up about things that matter. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, some might say like the two are in- intrinsically connected, yeah. you know? Um, so I guess that's like, but you feel that there is now. No, I do 100%. Now I, now I do believe, now I had to, like, I had to get myself to that point, okay. like to believe that those two could coexist yeah. and do coexist and, and, and actually meld together and, and make each other stronger in the way that like, and that's why the biggest artists mm-hmm. are, I think were political and yeah. the biggest, like, and, and by political, I mean like a higher level right. politics and right. like, and the biggest politicians were, or the artists. Biggest, were artists. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, and I think and and I think that's where maybe religion and all these things kind of helps to uh, it becomes that glue. In a yes. Sense. Like, yes. You know? And I think our generation and our sort of mm. hyper secular, <laughs> hyper secular state of existence, um, we are oblivious to that. And I say this as someone who grew up in a religious uh, environment and a very strange religious environment and and strange meaning like not typical. Um, And as someone who is not religious in the same way my parents would conceive of (laughs) religiosity or how it should be expressed, but I'm still very deeply spiritual and very deeply aware that um, like the wonderful millions of secular people who love Dr. King must come to terms with understanding that everything he, he did was rooted in spiritual. Like if you read his essays and if you listen to his speeches and if you listen to his sermons, (laughs) he was blending, you know, he was blending philosophies that were spiritual, that were religious in nature. He, his entire idea that, that mankind has, has an inherent worthiness that can never be, um, that can never be taken. And on that basis is why you must love the person who is oppressing you was informed by the apostle Paul. Like that's where he was getting it from. And he talked about that in his, in his writings. Um, Mm -hmm. and he talked about how he drew from Plato and all these other people, by the way, I personally believe that while the, I have a dream speech is amazing. The last speech that he gives, Mm. which I think is entitled, I have been to the mountaintop. Yes. Wow. You must listen to it if you haven't in full. The 45 minute version. Yeah. I mean, I think I've heard like the. You you must listen to it from start to finish. Wow. And then you'll see why Heschel thought he was a prophet. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I think I know what you're talking about. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Um, So, yes. So, so. And, you know, some people might prefer the term spirituality to religion. And I understand, I understand why. Um, but yes, our greatest artists existed on the spiritual realm. If you, if you going back to Prince, cause Prince was one of my favorite artists of all time. Um, a lot of the songs that Prince sang and wrote. You know, it's so sad. I don't know anything about so Prince. So sad. I'm very sorry. It's okay. But you can talk about yes. it. And I'll just, will not. <laughs> and uh, so, assume you're right. So, <laughs> So Prince was very deeply spiritual. Uh-huh. Um, he was also like a child prodigy, but whatever. He was very deeply spiritual. His songs that many people thought were just exclusively about romance were, was actually a, a blending of romance and religion. And he took religiosity and he took religious um, sort of religious vision to articulate his belief about love in the romantic film. And he would blend them and mix and and mold them to create these beautiful songs. Um, you should listen to the song seven okay. because that's one of the songs that comes to mind. That imagery is actually from the Bible wow. and he's singing about a romance, but it's from the Bible. Of mm. course, Leonard Cohen is also another person who did this all the time. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the greatest, Stevie Wonder, another living artist, does that all the time. Mm. Um, some of the greatest musicians, iconic musicians, did that were, were, and existed in the spiritual realm, which is a realm that, unfortunately, you know, the, the, the strictly secular world cannot get 
to un- unless it allows itself to open up to that world. Okay, I'm about to say something that's going to be <laughs> super heretical, but cool, awesome. <laughs> but I feel yeah like I get that feeling a lot also from being in the religious artistic world. Okay, in the sense that it is just as in the secular world, like if if there's like this focus too much on the external, like it's hard, yeah. it's impossible to really elevate your art to that level to this highest level yeah. if you're not thinking of something completely non-physical, right? right. Like, and, right. and so it's actually interesting because I, I feel like in the religious world um, that I am part of, there's so when, when people get too ensconced in the um, structure of it, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like, and the history of it. Right. And like, and so like music ends up becoming like this thing where it's like, it's saying the right things, right. And it's, but it's like, but where is it coming from? And right. what's it trying to, you know, is it really trying to reach Hashem? You yeah. Know? And anyway, it's actually interesting because I think now I'm thinking of the exception in my, one exception in my mind, the exception, one mm-hmm. exception, Yosef Karduner. Okay. Have you heard of him? No. He's, he's a Hasidic musician from okay. Israel. And he plays once a year in Crown Heights. You should totally go. Okay. Next time. <laughs> um, but it's like this thing. Oh, he 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 does like prayers, like okay. in Tehillim and all these yeah. things when he's um, Psalm. Whenever he's like um, performing, but it's like he's he's experiencing it, yeah. and like everyone there is feeling. It. It's like it's sadly in the times that I feel like praying the most. Like it's yeah. the most. My point being, like I actually, I actually, you know, I think it's funny because I think. Um, religious people to a certain extent mock the idea of being like spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. But I actually think that there's something so essentially true to this idea of aiming for the spiritual, Yeah, you know, in that sense, like, because it's about going, especially as a creative, right? Like yeah. breaking out of, of, uh, structure, yeah. you know, is ironically, that's, that's something that scares religious people. But right. at the same time, at least in the creative world, at least in the expression in, in the world of expressing yourself and mm-hmm. expressing your essence and, and, and trying to express yourself to someone else. For mm-hmm. example, like you're describing, like it can only happen in the world of the non-physical. Yeah. Right. Like how else? Yeah. That wasn't that heretical. <laughs> or at least I didn't think it was. Yeah. No, <laughs> it shouldn't be. Right. I mean, I, I think, but I think it's like, it can, I think it's, um, I don't know. I think it's 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 hard. It's hard because I think um, we're in this world. It's like we're in Gullis, you know, like we're yeah. in this place where the things get all mixed up. Right. Like, you know, where sometimes the most spiritual seems the most secular and right. the secular seems the most religious. And um, yeah, like, for example, they, people talk about Martin Luther King as yeah. if he wasn't religious. <laughs> yeah. Right. Or they talk about Bob Marley as if right. he wasn't really like, the most secular people on earth, like revere those people. Right. Exactly. And they it's like they miss the whole right. message there. Like ah. Oh. Yeah. It's um look, I think it comes I think it's it's an obvious product of not being deeply engaged in if one chooses to or one wants to the lives of the figures that they revere. Right? It's one thing. This is what I like to Oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> this is this is something that I find often in the Jewish community because um you know, this this question of race relations, for example, between African-Americans and Jews and sort of the historical legacy of marching together and, mm. you know, fighting together. And I find that often people who like to bring up Heschel and King know nothing about what Heschel and King actually <laughs> wrote, said, right. um, you know, deeply profound texts mm. that if they read them, if they engaged in them, if they tried to live their lives according to them, they they would be able to re-spark that relationship between uh-huh. Jews and blacks because it existed for a reason. <laughs> There's a reason, like I said, why in the book I'm reading, The New Negro, um, why many of the essayists kept referring to the Jewish people as a as a inspiration. There's a reason why Zora Neale Hurston, you know, famous writer of the Harlem Renaissance, wrote a book called Moses, Man of the Mountain, in which she 
she sort of like injected this this Torah story with black language. Um, there's a reason why our people have had this deep historical connection. And it's not, as I said on a recent Facebook post, it's not allyship. I actually hate that term. Mm. Uh, it's not allyship. It's a, it, it, is a tr- it was a true, deep relationship. We were in relationship with each other. We sat on each other's boards. The, the, the heads of ZOA sat on the boards of the NAACP. At oh, a certain that seems time, like, uh, not <laughs> something that would happen today. It would not happen today, and it's sad Especially that it wouldn't happen today. Recent statements, but yes, yeah. right. no, it, no, we're a long, <laughs> we're a long ways away, right, um, from that. Um, but listen, like we built each other's schools. Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald built thousands of schools that Langston Hughes went to and Maya Angelou went to and were educated mm. in the Jim Crow South because that's what our communities did together. So it's not like some, al- like, I don't know. I don't know why that term bothers me so much, but it's not. And relationship is, is totally different. Yeah. I mean, that's so, I love that. That's so fascinating. Um, you know, it's interesting. Like I, st- I, I recently, um, since we're at the end, like it, it, yeah. it, I, I recently, um, I was, I had this, uh, guy who was like a big fan of my writing, mm-hmm. um, who was a Muslim writer okay. and it was, it was interesting. Like we were always kind of back and forth, we'd be in touch mm-hmm. and whatever. And like talking, we just like kind of like admire each other from a distance sort of thing, but also know like certain times, <laughs> like not look at each other's Twitter feeds, yeah, yeah. but like point being <laughs> that, um, but we, but we really like deeply respected each other. And then, and then like Trump got elected mm-hmm. and all of a sudden something happened. And I think it simultaneously happened for both of us. Okay. And we're like, we would been online friends for like, I don't know, two, three years. Yeah. We never met. Oh yeah. And we were allies. At that, yeah. Right. Uh, but, uh, but we hadn't met. Right. And so, we were like, you know what? We need to like hang out and yeah. talk. And we sat down and he's like now someone I feel so close to and so connected to, you know, especially even though we have like different opinions. Yeah. And, um, but we also have a lot of shared. Ones. Right. And, and, and the thing that I see most powerful about it is like, we have so many shared values, right. you know, and, and it was, I, I think it was w- one of the first times in my life when I started to understand, I think I, I didn't have the words for it, but like, this idea of relationship yeah. versus allies, like the fact that I I didn't ever even thought to sit with him. Yeah, you know, like isn't isn't that crazy? Yeah, I think it's just crazy. Like this is guy. Like we were both like, but we just didn't. Neither of us thought of it. Yeah. And now we're you meet at least once a month. And we just That's awesome. Out. Yeah, and it's like, and it's not about we're trying to affect change. Or right. We don't want to have like an interfaith <laughs> display. <laughs> right. You know, right, it's right. like no, we want to sit and talk. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we want to connect over deep things. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I so appreciate your point of view. It's so powerful. Thank you. I really hope it gets out more. Yeah, same. Same. It's important to me. (laughs) I I think it has the power to 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 affect change. Actually, right. Um, That's (laughs) ultimately. That's what I was gonna say way at the beginning. I was gonna be like, it kind of sounds like you're saying like this is actually the way of achieving those goals. Yes. Yeah. I think ultimately, like if you actually, I'm arguing that if you want to, if one wants to achieve the things. These, these noble goals, these ideals, and they have to start speaking a language that is actually not rooted in the political landscape, but in the human condition. That's great. Well, I, we got to end there because that yeah. is like the perfect <laughs> circling back. That was, so we just, we just did it. We did it. Um, well, thank you so much. Is there anything like I can we can plug for you? Anything? Just get the word out. I know you're follow follow me, I guess. <laughs> how, how can we follow you? You know, I'm on Facebook. I'm, I have a page on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on all the all the platforms and cool. Instagram. Even if you wanna, you know, reach out to me. I'm all about building relationships with as many cool people as possible. Um, if you're in New York, you know, maybe we can meet up. So, <laughs> I love it. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Chloe. Thank you. It's great to have you. Thank you for listening to Hivriya Cast. I'm Aladna Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hivriya.com or facebook.com slash mag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. Oh uh-huh.
가득하여 이 달을 매일 